Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 48 of the Revive Yourself podcast. Here we go. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you got a health issue that just won't go away no matter what you try? Then welcome to the Revive Yourself podcast, where we reveal the secrets to long-lasting health by getting to the root cause of problems that no one else is talking about. So you can have more energy, clear skin, healthier hair, a leaner physique, more confidence, and most importantly, do the things you love and live the life you deserve. Here's your host, Ryan Martin. So guys, welcome to episode 48 this, oh, we're getting close to 50, I was just thinking, almost at the half century, 50 not out, so thanks once again guys for always listening and being such great listeners and a great audience and always giving us such great feedback, I know we've uh, been really getting out to all you guys across the world, getting some listeners from all over, so thank you for that guys, and also everyone that's on the free four day mini course, well done, you're doing really well, um, and those of you guys that have got any chronic issues, head on over to www.reviveyourself.co and you can sign up for that. Um, any, any, it'll teach you how to get through any of the issues you've been dealing with, uh, chronic issues, anything from IBS to skin issues, etc., thyroid um, issues, um, fatigue issues, etc. Otherwise, guys, we're on to episode 48, and this is with Dr. Glenn Livingstone, and it's all about how to never binge again. Um, so we're going deep into this topic because, you know, it's very easy for people to use to um, say junk food as comfort food and why and why it is uh, why is it so why it is why is this um, well we go into that we go into the the let's say brain science the neuroscience around this and we go into Dr Livingstone's own experience with this and I even talk a little bit about why this is having done um, neuroscience myself you know about the different aspects of the brain different parts of the brain what parts you're in and how it all relates to you eating this and and what you can do to stop this you know what you can do in fact at the end of the show we're actually going to do another um, episode with Dr Livingstone he's going to work on me a little bit just to show you how he works but this is a fascinating episode and we go deep into binge eating and how you can overcome it. So without further ado, here he is, here's Dr. Livingston, here's episode 48 and I'll see you on the other side. Hey guys and welcome to episode 48 of the Reviver Cell podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Glenn Livingstone, all the way from Portland, Oregon. And we're going to be talking about his book that he's authored called Never Binge Again. So welcome to the show, Glenn. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm happy to be here. Um, we were just talking off air and he was saying that he, the weather's actually um, not too bad where he is at the moment. But he has 14 years of terrible weather in Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, that the state motto in New Hampshire is live free or die, but we always joke that it should be live, freeze, and die. Um. <laughs> I think that actually, I think, is New Hampshire, is it um, quite near New Jersey? Is that correct? Um. It depends upon your definition of near. It's, okay. it's in New it's New England. It, bo- it borders Canada. Right. Okay. Um, okay. And, and it borders Maine. It's just north of Boston. Well, I think after, I remember seeing that on a Sopranos episode once. Just the, the, the live free or, or die. Um, well, another place. <laughs> That's why I think it was on the I was thinking, hey, who's from Jersey? So anyway, I digress. Um, so um, we're here to talk about your book, Never Binge Again. Um, uh, what really caught my eye is that a lot of the things, we're well, we going into your history and why you got into it, but... The fact that your your research, 40,000 participants, and it's all self-funded. Now, that's almost unheard of these days. 
um, especially because most most research is done by uh, Big Pharma, bought and paid for, as you probably know. So uh, I just want to say well done on that, to be honest with you. Well, I, I, first of all, that was in the days of um, extraordinarily cheap internet clicks. So right. most people don't, rec- don't remember a firm called GoTo, which became Overture, which then became Bing. I believe it became Bing. Um, but back then, you could get people to your website for a couple of pennies. And it was over the course of a few years. And um, I had a very – I actually was a consultant to Big Farmer and Big Food, which I'm not really proud of. But I knew how to do those, I knew how to do those studies so I didn't have to pay for the labor. Um, so it's not quite as impressive as, as, it, as it sounds, but it was equally as valid. And, um, and it, was a, it was a strong study, and it found a couple of interesting things. It didn't solve the problem, but it – Found a couple of interesting things, so thank right. you. That's cool. No worries. Um, so, just before we get into, because what we want to talk about is, I mean, we're going to talk about overeating, uh, stress eating, binge eating, um, and then sort of how to the, the what the what I want to talk about as well at the end is reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person. It's one of the topics that we mentioned, which is really good. But your your story, then, how did you get into? Because I mean, you're a psych, psychologist. Um, so, how did you get into that? Uh, was it always your love? Yeah, well, was overeating. Was, I I like to eat, right. <laughs> put it that way. Um, treating overeaters was not my profession for um, you know years and years and years. Yeah. It's only something I really started doing as my late forties and early fifties. Um, I I was born in a family of psychologists. My mom, my dad, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. There are seventeen therapists in the family, and. Yeah. We often joke that if something broke in the house, we knew how to ask it, how it feels, but we didn't know how to fix it. So, <laughs> Seventeen—that's a huge amount. Yeah, if you say, if you say Doctor Livingston, I presume everybody turns around and slaps you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so um, but the thing is that from the time I was really little, when I was four years old, I heard my dad on the radio, and I asked my mom why he was on the radio, and she said he's a psychologist, and I said, "Well, what's a psychologist?" And she said, "Well, that's someone who makes people happy when they're sad." And I said, I want to do that. Why is he on the radio? And oh. she said, so he can make more people happy when they're sad. And so that, that's who I always was first and foremost. And that's um, kind of important as the story goes along. Um, but I also, like I'm not just a psychologist that decided to work with overeaters. I, I had a very serious binge eating problem. And when, when I was an adolescent, I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was a superpower. Mm. I, I could, um, you know, I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and... If I worked out for a few hours a day, I could eat whatever the heck I wanted to. I mean, right. a couple of pizzas, boxes of muffins, you know, six or seven. They didn't call them lattes back then, but something that approximated that. Mm-hmm. Um, munchkins, wh- whatever you could imagine, I did it. I don't think I had a vegetable until I was 21. And I was thin. Yeah. Um, but when I got to graduate school, and I got married, and I was commuting, and I had all these responsibilities. I couldn't find the time to work out more than like you know, 45 minutes, two or three times a week. And my metabolism was slowing down anyway. And um, I found that I just started gaining weight because I, I couldn't stop thinking about food. I, I always felt, felt like food was free. It was just this free drug, and I just went to town on it. And this really bothered me in particular because I – was so dedicated to being a psychologist and I very much wanted to help the people I was working with. And I, I had chosen to work with very high risk populations. So I worked with a lot of suicidal people. 
I worked with um, people right after an affair in the marriage when everything was at risk. Right. And it was, um, you know, it was it was really these situations which required my 100% presence. But I, I'd be sitting there thinking, when can I get out to the deli contestants and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the deli tray into it? That's, that's what my life was like. Um, and that really, really bothered me. But coming from a family of psychologists, I looked for a very psychological answer. I, I figured that there was something wrong and I had to love myself then. And so I looked for where that hole was inside of me. So, you know, I, I, I never had kids and I never commuted. So I had a lot of time to, um, like after graduate school, I had a lot of time to work on my career. So in addition to my clinical practice, I did a lot of consulting for industry. And I knew how to run those studies. And so I set up that 40,000-person study, and I looked at the foods that people had trouble eating, like where they couldn't stop, mm -hmm. and various personality and life satisfaction variables, like mm -hmm. you know, how stressed they were and how satisfied they were with different pieces of their life. And I found three things in the study. One thing I found was that people like me who struggled with chocolate, because my my binges always started with chocolate. They never they they would end with you know pizza and pop tarts and all kinds of stuff, but they'd always start with chocolate. And I found that people like me who struggled with chocolate tended to have more loneliness or heartbreak in their life. I thought that was interesting. And people that struggled with salty, crunchy things like pretzels and chips, they tended to have more stress at work. And people who had more trouble with like soft, chewy, starchy things like bagel and bread and pasta and maybe pizza, they tended to, ha tended to have more stress at home. And I figured that that was going to be a significant finding. And all I had to do then was figure out how to solve the problems at work or at home or in people's love lives. And then the requisite problems would go away. The corresponding problems would go away. So I started with myself and um, you know, I was in not such a great marriage and I was pretty unhappy and I um, figured, well, okay, so there is loneliness and heartbreak in my life. And I went and I talked to my mom, who was also a therapist, and I said, mom, you know my upbringing better than anybody. What is it about my upbringing that would create this connection between chocolate and, you know, loneliness or heartbreak? And she got this horrible look on her face and she looked really embarrassed. And I said, mom, it's okay. It's a long time ago. Just, just tell me. And she said, well, you know, Glenn, when you were a little boy, when you were a toddler, you, um, you were often coming, running to me, crying, wanting food, wanting hugs and wanting love. But honestly, I was overwhelmed. My, my dad, your grandfather, um, was in prison. And he, you know, for a while he was missing. We didn't know what happened. And I was very, very depressed about that. And your dad was a captain in the army. And they were talking about taking him to Vietnam. I guess I'm revealing my age. Mm -hmm. and, and so honestly, sometimes I was just so depressed. I was sitting and staring and I just, I didn't have the wherewithal to respond to you and hug you and love you and feed you. So I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and I put it in a refrigerator on the floor. You probably don't remember this cause you're like one and a half or two years old, but you go, when you come running up to me, I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running up to the refrigerator, you get out the Bosco and you'd suck on the bottle and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. And I thought, wow, that's, that's got to be it. There's, there's the match that struck the fire. Now that I know this, I should be better. But the thing was, I didn't get better. I 
felt more forgiving of myself. I understood the problem better. I wasn't as self-castigating. I felt more forgiving and compassionate with my mom. It led to a whole series of conversations about her life back then and how, you know, how she chose my dad and the struggles in her marriage and all kinds of interesting things that deepened my relationship with my mom and deepened my self-esteem in some ways because I was no longer torturing myself about the psychological aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But, but it didn't stop the binging because there was this crazy voice in my head that said, you know, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. It's not her fault, but she didn't love you enough. And, and until you can figure out how to fill that hole inside of you, we're going to just have to go right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee. And, and you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that, that's basically what happened. Can I say, this is, this is fascinating stuff, and we've covered it maybe a little bit before with a guest, but this is the to do with, as you probably obviously know, psychologists, the brain chemistry and, and things, but what gets fired together gets wired together, correct? So obviously it's why people go and have comfort food. It's one of the questions I actually wrote down, that comfort food, one of the things, if she doesn't give you chocolate milk, she should then give you her breast maybe to feed. So we, we create comfort with sugar. And so straight away, people are going for that. And it's something that people don't understand enough of, uh, I think. And you think it's such a, that's such a great story that you're telling people there because sometimes people beat themselves up. They don't understand these things that get fired together from a young age, get wired together. And it's really, you've got to do some deep work to understand that. So I just wanted to say that's brilliant. Well, that, that's a really good point, and the, the real point is that it doesn't really matter what match struck the fire. No. The, these things have a life of their own, um, because ne- the principle of neuroplasticity, what fires together, wires together, um, associates, the, associates the gratification and the reward with the chocolate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, they, there was no chocolate bars on the savannah. We didn't yeah. have chocolate chocolate trees, in it, right? In the tropics as we're evolving, we didn't have that. This is an invention of industry for profit. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with chocolate. Some people don't have a problem with it at all. For some people, it's a lovely thing. But for a lot of people, it has corrupted your survival drive. And a lot of the work that I did with industry, I know that there are billions of dollars going into engineering food-like substances that are like hyper palatable artificial concentrations of starch and sugar and salt and oil and excitotoxins and things to things that target your lizard brain on a level which evolution did not prepare you no, for. No, 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 no. You're a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe it, Glenn. Never. This isn't happening. <laughs> That's what people will say. And I was sitting there with a big smile on, your, on my face because what you're saying is so true. It's one of the questions I wrote down. People don't get addicted to sweet potato, organic sweet potato. They don't just sit there and eat bowls and bowls and bowls of it, you know, or, right. or normal potatoes. It's always these foods, like once you pop, you can't stop with Pringles and chocolate and pretzels and whatever things you're saying where they're, they're trying to find that bliss point, the, the, the scientists with the salt and sweet and etc. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm sitting there with a big smile on my face as you were talking about because it's, it's just what people need to hear this because they, I don't think people understand how much these industries are doing this. So you, you buy their stuff, you know. Um, oh, but it's it, it's not it's not only the and it's not only the food engineers that create the substances that are addictive in the first place. And I, remind me, I want to tell you about an animal study that really shows what the impact of these you know hyperpalatable pleasure things are. Yeah, um, but the advertising industry 
is very, very good at spending their billions to make you believe that this stuff is healthy. I, I remember a VP at a major food bar manufacturer, a really good guy, but he told me I – mean, you guys will all recognize it if I said the name and then I get sued. But, but, <laughs> but, but um, he told me that their critical insight was when they realized they should take the vitamins out of the bar and they should put the money into the packaging instead. Mm. They took the vitamins out of the bar because it was making it taste bad, and they put the money into making it appear healthy, so vibrant colors and you know sh- shiny packaging and all and like you know all this yeah. money spent on testing the packaging. Um, and so it's perfectly legal for them to fool you into thinking that things are healthy. Yeah. And the majority of the public thinks that advertising is stupid and that it doesn't affect them. And the reason that the advertising industry keeps spending money on that is because advertising impacts you more when you think it doesn't affect you. Your really? sales resistance is down. Really? And so everybody's walking around thinking it doesn't matter, but there are billions of dollars spent yeah, on course, people. Yeah. Once you pop, you can't stop. I bet you can't have just one. Yeah. And then, Ryan, the addiction treatment industry, based on no evidence whatsoever, there is no evidence whatsoever that addiction is a disease. There is no evidence whatsoever that people are powerless to stop. Um, but based on that, based on that evidence, based on, even with the only two scientifically controlled studies that have been, or quasi-controlled studies that have been presented, showing that you know these treatment programs are no better than doing nothing at all. They're either at parity with, or no better than doing nothing at all. The addiction treatment industry says you're powerless to stop on your own. You're, you're um, you know, it's. You couldn't quit if you wanted to. The best you can do is hope to make progress, not perfection, and abstain one day at a time. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing good that goes on in those in those programs, but but it's the wrong overall message. And so you combine these things, and you've got a perfect storm that says, you know, what says that you're powerless over this. You're constantly stimulated by it, and um, and people walk around feeling hopeless chronically ambivalent about whether should, they should eat this or that, chronically uh, tortured by food obsession, and they don't really understand what's going on. And they, they tend to blame themselves. They tend to um, like degrade their own self-esteem and experience a feeling of shame rather than getting freaking mad at what's going on in the world today. So I'm sorry you got me up on a soapbox about that. No, 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 100%. I completely agree. Yeah. I think it's something that people are worried too much about the wrong things and they actually understand what's going on and then you say stuff and they think that it's all conspiratorial or whatever and it's just like, I've been doing this so long now, it, it's just a matter of fact and it's just a matter of time until they unfortunately learn the hard way. Uh, and that's what I did, that's why I got into what I do. I I, I was a, uh, I was very ill for five years and that's why I took, took, went down this rabbit hole and when you go down this rabbit hole, as you found, it's just like you keep on finding things and um, it, nothing becomes, I'd say, uh, nothing becomes unbelievable because of what's going on. I mean, I mean, carry on with it because it's something people just need to know more and more about. Because as people understand, it's not, it's not just. I mean, you're talking about the binging as well. It's, it is a psychological thing, and it becomes a physical thing, and it, and it's, and it just, it just all rolls into one, you know, and it just becomes a bigger problem. Uh, yeah. So, what I just one more little piece of evidence, and then I want to try to shift into some practical ways to overcome this. And I'll tell you how I overcame it myself. Yeah. Because um, it's actually a lot simpler than, than it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole series of animal studies in the late 50s and early 60s. And, you know, I'm a, 
I'm kind of an animal rights advocate, and I don't think these studies should have been done, but they were done, um, where they implanted electrodes in starting with rats in, in their brains in the pleasure centers. And they wired those electrodes to a lever that the rats could push themselves whenever they wanted to, so they could still self-stimulate with pleasure in a way that evolution hadn't prepared them to do. Well, what do you think happened? Those rats wanted to press those buttons thousands of times per day. That's all they wanted to do, was just go press the button. And then the experimenters wanted to see how salient was the desire to press the button as compared to other needs. And it turns out that it was the most important need that they had when they were able to do that. So they would ignore their survival needs. Really? They would Starving rats, what they wouldn't eat, they'd just keep pressing the button. Nursing mothers would abandon their pups to go press the button. Rats would crawl over a painful electrical grid to go press the button thousands of times a day. When you provide the mammalian, and this was replicated in higher mammals and eventually humans, when you provide... Uh, when you provide the mammalian brain with a means to artificially stimulate the pleasure centers in ways that we didn't evolve to, to manage, the result is severe self-neglect. The result is that we, we neglect what's actually required for our survival. Mm-hmm. And so that's put it all together. I'm just saying that's fascinating. Sorry, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it really is. And so when you put it all together, you, you realize that these things have a life of their own. It, it doesn't matter that my mom was the one that struck the match and got me set up with this pattern. You know, neurologically, this, ha- this thing has a life of its own. Um, societally, societally, this thing has a life of its own. There are, you know, big fat guys in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank mm-hmm. because they're prof- profiting from us buying these pleasure buttons. And, you know, pe- people kind of need to shift the shame to anger and, um, Okay, so that, but then the question is, what can you do about it? So after about 30 years, literally 30 years of just going to psychiatrists and psychologists, and you know, I, I knew the best ones because I was in New York and my family was in the business, mm-hmm. um, I learned a lot as I went through. I'm not saying I'm sorry that I did that, but, but you know, going to Overeat is Anonymous. In the end, nothing really worked, and I just started getting more and more obsessed with food, and it Different periods, I was 60 or 70 pounds overweight, and my triglycerides were 1,100, and the doctors were telling me I was going to die by the time I was 35. Was it, was it your favorite part of the day? Because, I mean, I know people, just to interrupt you, but just, just okay. I know people that, for example, even, even my father, for example, he was come from a poor family, um, so, and they had to eat sugar sandwiches when they were young, you know. And from that point, um, I think my dad always had a bit of an issue. Uh, he's, he's actually very lean, always been lean, can eat what he wants. He actually developed diabetes later on because he, I think he always had a bit of a thing about food. Like he had to have it or like if it was there, it had to be eaten and he had to eat it because he never knew when he was getting it when he was younger. I mean, was this, was this, and it always seems to be that when he's eating, even now he's got we've reversed his diabetes, etc., when he has his meal, he really enjoys it. It's one of his favorite parts of the day. Was that with you? Did you, I mean, are you looking for it? Was it a subconscious thing or was you consciously like really enjoying that, that food at the time? Oh, no, no. I, I live to eat. Right. You know, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was great. Mm. Um, the thing you have to watch out for is that there's this voice in your head that says you're going to be giving up the world's greatest pleasure. Yeah. And, and life's not going to be worth living without it. Um, that is so what, true. What, what that yeah. 
Sorry, mate. God, I think I need to keep saying things that I think are, are, are priceless because I think a lot of people think that if I can't eat and drink what I want, what else am I going to do? Well, and you're supposed to feel like that. That's that's the way these foods are engineered to make you feel. You're supposed to feel like it's a matter of survival because they've actually corrupted your survival drive. So if there are two parts of you, there's this part of you that says, I know I shouldn't be eating this. I have all these healthy understandings of nutrition. I want to be eating, you know, paleo or vegan or, you know, low carb or whatever your particular dietary philosophy is. And you know that you feel best when you do that, but you're constantly being derailed um, because there's this crazy voice in your head that, you know, says chocolate grows on a, grows on a cocoa bean and cocoa bean comes from a plant so chocolate's a vegetable um it's that's the voice of your survival drive having been corrupted towards this stuff what what it ignores the idea that you're going to be deprived of pleasure forever that that ignores the fact that your taste buds have been down regulated by the supersized stimuli that you've been consuming when you eat sugar sandwiches mm-hmm. week in, week in and week out day in and day out for years your brain thinks that something has to be that sweet in order to produce the you know dopaminergic reward response in the brain that um, nature intended. And the natural dopaminergic reward response has been down-regulated. So the brain just doesn't respond the way it's supposed to. The good news is when you stop eating sugar mm-hmm. and you start eating fruit, your Bodies, your taste buds um, double or triple in sensitivity in a matter of weeks. Your brain begins to upregulate and you begin to experience the same level of pleasure or more. Well, not quite the same. There's a certain high that you get from sugar that you'll never get from a banana. Um, yeah. But the pleasure is pretty close to, um, to, to, to what you're used to. And the difference is that there's no roller coaster ride associated with it. So right. you get the pleasure, but you don't get the crash. And there's more of a contentment as opposed to a manic high, which is why I tell people that it's better to change their paradigm. And instead of thinking of food as, um, of, instead of thinking of the idea that you want comfort food, I, I'd like you to think that you're looking for these industrial foods to get high with food, that it's almost like a drug. Um, Right, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. So, could I, is it okay if I shift to the part where I found a practical strategy that worked Go really well? It. Go for it. This is a, you can probably tell that I'm an educated, sophisticated guy. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't wear a lot of suits or function at tea parties very well, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I've, I've, I've had a lot of education, I've done a lot of things, and I'm kind of a sophisticated consultant, but... Um, the solution I found was not sophisticated at all. I had been reading a lot of alternative addiction literature, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that would take me outside of the 12-step programs because I just seen that evidence that that really wasn't working. It certainly wasn't working for me. And I came across a guy who wrote a book called Rational Recovery. His name is Jack Trimpey. And he works largely with the black and white addictions like you know, alcohol and cigarettes and drugs things that you can quit entirely. You don't have a need for them in your life as opposed to food, which is something you have to take the lion out of the cage three times a day and walk it around the block. Um, And what what he basically did for me was he shifted my paradigm. So I think anybody struggling with drugs or alcohol should go read his book and don't don't bother with mine. What was he called again? Uh, 
It's called rational recovery. Rational recovery. Um, but if you're struggling with food, then I'm, I'm the guy to, yep. to go to. Um, basically, what he did for me was he shifted the paradigm. And he said, look, addiction targets the lizard brain. The lizard brain is this structure which evolved millions of years ago. And the way that it works in the environment is nothing to do with love. So if you're trying to love yourself then, you're making a mistake. The, the lizard brain sees something in the environment and it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no concern for other people or tribe or family. Yeah. There's no concern, no concern for long-term goals and aspirations or creativity or art or music or religion. None of that. No spirituality. It's all eat, mate, or kill. This is like a bodily organ that you have to take control over. Same way that you take control over your testicles or your ovaries. Um, you, don't, you don't allow the impulses generated by your testicles to tell you that you should run up and kiss every pretty girl on the street. Um, at, least, at least I don't. <laughs> um, um, you know, if, if you have to urinate, you don't allow that very strong biological urge to be expressed in ways that are not good for your place in society. You, there's a place in yeah. time that you do. Yeah, you don't wet yourself, uh, and, for example. Yeah, you don't just walk around wetting yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, except for that one time I was stuck in traffic in Boston, but we, <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk about that. You don't normally um, wet yourself. That's what I'm saying. You don't normally yeah. wet yourself. Um, and, and, but what he said was that you really needed a method for um, dominating the lizard brain rather than loving, loving yourself out of the addiction. And I took that to mean the difference between nurturing your inner wounded child or capturing and caging a rabid animal. And for so many people who struggle with overeating, I find that the solution has to do with capturing, caging the rabid animal rather than nurturing that inner wounded child. And I mean, I'm a really compassionate guy. If you listen to some of the recorded coaching sessions that I do, it's, you'll, you'll say, hey, this guy has got a really weird theory, but he's kind of loving in practice. Um, but this sounds kind of harsh. Here's what I did. Here's how I did it. I decided that my lizard brain was going to be my pig. Not, not a real pig. It's just a mental construct. I, I love real pigs in the world. They need our help. But this is, this is a mental construct. This was my pig, and I was not going to eat like a pig. So my, inner, my lizard brain was my pig. I was going to draw really clear lines in the sand. So, for example, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. Monday through Friday, I would never have chocolate. I'll tell you why I use that as opposed to a guideline. And then I would say the chocolate itself is pig slop. And if I heard the pig squealing for slop, I would say, well, I don't want that. My pig does. And I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I never eat pig slop. And as ridiculous and crude as that sounds, as, as embarrassing as it is for someone like me to, to say that, that's what gave me the extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up, remember who I was, what kind of person I wanted to be around a particular food, and start to make the right decision. And it, it wasn't perfect. It took some time to, to experiment with and kind of get used to. Um, but it was a dramatic change. It, it really shifted the direction of my eating. And you know, that's how I lost my weight. That's how I recovered. And that's how I, I just started to separate all of my constructive versus destructive thoughts about food. And I decided that I was done. I'm just tired of this destructive thing in my head, having control. I'm tired of letting industry, you know, profit from my misery. 
Um, I wanted to live a long and healthy life. I was, I, I believed that my pleasure apparatus would readjust so that I wouldn't really be deprived in the long run. I might feel deprived for a month as I was getting used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's what worked for me. That's what really worked for me. I kept the journal. Um, I kept the journal for a lot of years. And then I published it on a whim. I edited the, edited the journal into a book and I published it on a whim. And it took off. It, it's very frequently the number one book for weight loss, eating disorders, and um, I forget the last category, weight, weight maintenance on, on the Kindle, um, on, the free, on the free side. So, uh, so that's what I do now. Now I, now I have a coaching network and I help people to, you know, to stop binge eating using this really, really weird method. Yeah, no, and obviously people can find you at www.neverbingeagain.com. There are books there. But just, just quickly there, um, Glenn, when you started there, because – Obviously, you said it's quite a quick, um, it's quite a quick fix. You don't want to feed your pig. For a lot of people, I mean, you you had to have consciously done that, right? Because, because I mean, the unconscious can take over, and before people know it, they're they're sad, they're depressed. Before people know it, they're in the fridge, they're eating chocolate, and they've eaten the, all the biscuits. They've eaten the whole pack, and they haven't even, they don't even know what's going on. So you have to consciously. Um, it's sort of like you have to give things attention because if you're not giving things attention. I, th- I can't remember what part of the brain it is. Maybe. Uh, I'm trying to think. I can't is it the medulla or something? It takes over and it's, 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 it's the reticular activating system. Reticular, because cause that's the way you can just get in the car and drive to, for example, from London to Liverpool, and you're not even know what gear you're in because you just it's sub- sub- subconscious, correct? So you have to make this a part of your conscious um, activity not to do this for a while for it to kick in, correct? Because to start with, it, it won't just be uh, easy for most people to do. Yes, it's it's kind of like learning to drive. When you when you first learn to drive, you have to learn the rules of the road. Right. You know what what do you do at a four way stop? You know when do you have to slow down for a yellow light? What does a blinking yellow light mean? There's a bunch of stuff you have to study, but once you've studied it and you've driven for a couple of months, you don't even really think about it. Mm-hmm. Like 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 just just like you said, you can drive around without having an accident, and it's mostly unconscious. But it does require that initial conscious effort to reprogram yourself. Um, yeah. And yeah, and and that that conscious effort, if we'd stay with the same analogy, it it surrounds finding the dangerous intersections in your life and deciding whether you want to put a stoplight or a stop sign or a yield light or a yield sign. You know what what level of control do you need to put there? Yeah. Um, so so I, you know I tell people, look, you can have a rule that says I'll never eat chocolate again. Or you could have a rule that says I'll never eat chocolate on the weekdays again, or I'll never eat chocolate, you know, except for at a social event again. You can you can construct a rule any way you want to. It can be totalitarian or it can be conditional. You can also create rules for what you always do, like I always put my fork down between bites, or I always have six ounces of water as soon as I get up in the morning, or I always meditate before I turn on my computer. You know, you can, But you, what you want to do is define these things as lines in the sand that don't have any ambiguity in them because it's ambiguity that lets the lizard brain come through. See, the the traditional advice in our culture is to create guidelines as opposed to rules. So you'd say, well, I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time. But that's a really big problem. And the reason the research is indicating that's a big problem now is because willpower is not like an on-off switch. Mm -hmm. It's not something like you have or you don't. It's more like gas in your tank. And willpower is worn down every time you have to make a decision. 
That's why there are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of the day. That's why people start out the day with the best of intentions and find themselves sitting at the refrigerator at night and just, you know, binging their hearts out. It's because they wore down their willpower over the course of the day, making decision after decision. And if you use a guideline, like I'm, I'm only going to have chocolate 90, I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time. While it might have the best of intents, it still requires that every time there's a chocolate bar in front of you, that you make the decision about whether this is part of the 10% or the 90%. Yeah. Whereas if, if you say, I'm only ever going to have chocolate again on Saturdays and Sundays, then all of your decisions during the week have been made and you don't have to wear down your willpower. So it's a, it's a really big deal to come up with a very clear rule as opposed to a guideline. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's almost like if you, if, you, if you have nothing bad in the house as well, it almost means that if you want, if it comes to that and you, then you have to drive and get something. Most people are, <laughs> are not going to actively go out and drive to get it. I mean, do you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's if it's there and it's readily available. This is the thing with most of the shops as well nowadays. They're open 24-7, so it's easy for people to go, just go and buy rubbish a lot of the time. But the thing there as well, you're talking about um, willpower. Uh, I remember doing my course in neuro, neuroscience and just talking about how willpower basically doesn't exist. It's 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 something that we've almost created. I mean, you always can be disciplined. You either want to do things for, to make. I always talk about uh, it's almost addition, uh, subtraction by addition. You can put lots of good stuff in. If you, if you say, "Well, I've got to have two green smoothies today. Or I've got to have two salads today. Or I've got to have this amount." By the time that you're so full, you don't want anything else. But there's things inside you sometimes, like parasites and bacteria, that are craving these things. We've got to get onto. That's another topic, but. What you've also got to do, what you mentioned there is, when you talk about the lizard brain and you've got the mammalian brain and, and then the human brain, if your body's pushed into threat, the body doesn't know the difference between, I mean, threat from whatever, whatever it may be, like a car accident, a car accident or whatever, and then people start to, to crave through. So you can walk into a room, for example, um, and you may have a book on the shelf and it might have a letter in there, a note in there from a, a loved one who's passed away. And that book being there means that you constantly go in that room and you don't feel right. And your brain, it's really weird, there's a story of this. Or, um, and it can push you into a stage of threat where you're looking for comfort and then someone goes to, to the fridge and looks for comfort that way. It means that people have also got to start looking at their lives in a whole, you know, um, so they can take away these, these threatening things that they don't even think are threatening to stop pushing them into a state of looking for comfort. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, I know it's a bit more complicated it, than, than the simple. No, 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 no. It, it, it's the other side of the equation. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I tend to focus more on the idea that it's possible for people to make statements of character right. which they, they will execute regardless of their comfort level. Right. But that doesn't mean you should strive to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, for example, most people who struggle with nighttime eating are not engaging in enough self-care and they are not attending enough to their environment, and they're walking around in a state of um, fright or flight without knowing it, just like, just like you're saying. Yeah. So it's going to be a lot easier uh, if you attend to self-care. It's going to be a lot easier if you, you know, learn to meditate for five minutes a day, if you, you know, do a little yoga or breathing or um, you know, remove, the, remove the fearful stimuli from your environment. Um, mm. All, all of that is a very important piece of the equation because mm-hmm. what, what you're ultimately trying to do is cultivate a peaceful presence of mind that allows you to 
right. not live such a reactive life and make the decisions you really want to make. Right. That, that's what you're looking to do. Yeah, yeah. We always uh, think we say responses, not reactions. You know, it's a big difference. If you know that, for example, if you know that your boss is constantly puts work on your desk at six o'clock, you prepare for it, and when it comes, you'll be like, okay, work home. But if, you, if, you, if you're not used to it, or if he does it the first time and you're looking to get somewhere, it will stress you out because you've got to be somewhere. It's like getting in the car and being like, well, someone might cut me up, and when they do, I'm going to be like, not a problem. But if you're not thinking about it and someone cuts you up and you fly into a rage, you know, it's responses rather than reactions, and that's huge. Um, so it's just something I want to touch on there. The, the thing I want to talk about, again, that you, you mentioned is what um, thinking like a thin person. Now, what do you mean? What do you mean by this for people out there? Because you said uh, how you can reprogram yourself to permanently think like a thin, thin person. How does someone go about that? Well, what you really want to be doing is cultivating a thin character, and ask you ask yourself for all of the difficult situations in your life. So, Starting with the single most difficult tr trigger for it, I usually ask people to come up with one rule as a very practical basis that would make a dramatic difference in their life. For some people, that's, um, you know, I'll never eat standing up again, okay. or I'll always put, always put my fork down between bites, or, or, you know, for some people, it's, um, you know, I'll never have more than two drinks while I'm out to dinner because I tend to get carried away with the food if I do. Um, wh whatever it is. And I, my program is completely diagnostic. I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I don't think that I'm in the position to do that. Mm -hmm. But you just kind of think through ahead of time, what kind of person do you want to be in this situation or around that particular food? The reason that's so important is because character trumps willpower. Um, and we, we all make character decisions on a daily basis, which which uh, obliterate the need to use willpower um, ever. So, so for example, most people who sit down at a diner and when they sit down, there's a $20 bill on the table and someone left the waitress a tip, but she didn't see it. And there's no, and she says, I'll be right back. I'm just going to get you some menus. And there are no windows and there's nobody up at the front and nobody would see them take the $20 bill. Most people tell me that they would never take that $20 bill. And I'll ask them why. And they'll say, well, I'm not a thief. That, that woman worked hard for that money. And I say, does it require any willpower not to take it? And they'll say, no, because I'm not a thief. I said, so you mean even though it would enhance your financial situation, it would feel good to you, you could you know, buy things that you couldn't buy otherwise, nobody would know, you're not going to take that as a matter of character because you're not a thief. And they'll say, absolutely. See, and that, that's... Um, that's the way that someone has reprogrammed them to self, self to believe like uh, they reprogram themselves to think like an honest person. That's right? awesome. That's awesome. That's a really good point. So you can reprogram yourself to think like a thin person by saying, I will never have chocolate during the week again. That's right. if, if, if that's where I get in trouble, then I'm going to be a different person around chocolate. I'm going to make all of my food decisions as a matter of character Right now, I'm going to decide the kind of person that I want to be around chocolate during the week or forever or however you want to do it. That, that's, that's what I mean. And then you listen very carefully for your inner pig. You don't have to call it a pig. Some people don't like to do that. You can call it um, in your inner food monster or some yeah. women call it inner B-I-T-C-H. Yeah. Yeah, I've got it. And it's almost like, for example, for me, there's, there's things I eat occasionally. 
um, if I'm at a social event, I don't eat them that often, but um, for example, my bar green and blacks on the weekend, for example, um, and I might have a social drink with, with my friends. When I was going from a healing period, I, I never would do, but now I do. But there's things I'd never eat. I'm, I'm, I, that is probably relevant to my character. I'll never eat a McDonald's, you know. I'll never eat um, a KFC. Is this is this foods that I just won't eat? I'm sorry, I've named a few there, but everyone else is entitled to do what they want. But I'm saying that's just something I wouldn't eat myself, you know. Um, and I never have ever since the last time I had um, the golden arches, whatever they want to call, 2007. Never eaten it since. Never will. Um, and. I completely get what you mean there. Having that as a character, it's just something that you just don't do. Um, and I think that's a great way of coming across it. Um, you you also mentioned about foods. Uh, I think it might come into this as well. About foods being to four different categories. Um, like always, never's, conditionals, and unrestricted. Is that something that you'd put into something into into this sort of category as well? Um. Yes, I do talk about those four categories. I don't quite understand is what do I put into the categories? I missed the last part of the question. Oh, sorry. No, yeah, so I'm just saying, would that sort of um, be around the character issue as well? Like, I, I always have greens or I always have organic food, for example. I never, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah be, be, because ca character is just a, it's just our habitual way of behaving without thinking about it. Right. And so what I'm suggesting is that you – Articulate it in very specific, unambiguous language. Um, what your character will be, what kind of person you will be, in these situations which have hitherto um, bothered you. Right. So, if you if you were doing this for someone, and you said create a food plan where you've got always, never, conditionals, and unrestricted, would that be something that was on their fridge? They say we well, can always have this, or is it that? Or how would you go about creating that? Was I mean, I know it's very individual, but what would be the best way for someone to go about that? Well. It is good to, in the beginning, first of all, you want to create a fairly simple plan. You want to be sure that the plan is nutritionally complete and calorically sufficient. Mm -hmm. I don't like when people try to lose too much weight too quickly because they tend to bounce back. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, and you want to kind of project yourself into the future for a year and ask yourself, what's going to change in my life if I follow this plan for a full year? I know that my pig says I can't do it, but what if I did? And look at your, you know, all the different health variables like your weight and your skin and your energy level. But look at all the mental variables also, like the clarity of mind and the ability to have better relationships and be a better role model for your kids. Go through all the dimensions of your life and really project out that future, and put it down in like a short essay, a paragraph or two, so that you remember why you're doing this. And if you set up a daily reminder of not only what the food plan is. Um, but why you're doing it, you're much more likely to follow it and shape your character accordingly, re reprogram yourself to think think like that thin person and be the thin person that you want to be. So, yes, I do recommend they put it on the refrigerator or personally, I recorded mine into an MP3 and I listen to it, you know, in the morning when I work out and mm -hmm. I, I kind of like to do it, so. Yeah, no, it just goes back to that, again, giving it, giving it conscious thought until it becomes subconscious. Basically, uh, it's almost like um, with a boxer as well. A boxer, they'll, they'll I mean, it's, it's sort of one of the things that Paul Check talks about. You know, you always ask someone, 
why they won the world championships. It's because they did the basics, you know. It's not because they did the double twisted, whatever. It's because they did the basics. And if you keep on um, doing something, it becomes um, subconscious. It gets ingrained into your nervous system, um, which is great. So, yeah, very simple. Um, but that's one of the things as well. As a lot of the world gets more complex, the things that we've got to do to, to remain healthy and lean and happy are actually some of the simplest things that we should do. And as you mentioned, you know, there's no um, chocolate. You don't see, a, I think I mentioned an animal, but as I always say, you don't see a fat rattlesnake or a giraffe with PCOS. You know, it's all things that are modern, <laughs> modern, modern life, modern lifestyle diseases. Yes, yes, it's, it's an artifact of industry. Yeah, it's an artifact. Of, that's what you said, yeah, artifact of industry. Um, anything else you'd like to mention? I know you've got, you mentioned you've got a free book that you'd like people to be able to get. Well, so my book is available um, for free for the Kindle or the Nook, or we'll get you a PDF if you want an electronic version. So, oh, really? le- yep. So the electronic version is free. You can get that at neverbingeagain.com and just sign up for the reader bonuses. Mm-hmm. Um, you you will get directed to the physical version if you prefer to purchase that, but mm-hmm. the electronic versions are free, um, and there's an audible version as well. The other things that you get when you do that, though, for free are a set of recorded coaching sessions. So you'll be able to hear the way this works in practice. Ryan and I have been talking about it in theory and it sounds a little weird and a little harsh, Mm -hmm. but if you hear the hope and enthusiasm that it restores in people when I take them through it, I think it's gonna be a lot more motivating to you. Mm -hmm. And, And then I created a whole bunch of food plan starter templates. So basically that's a set of um, hypothetical rules, which I want you to modify and make your own. But we created them for every dietary philosophy you could imagine. So there's one for paleo, there's one for vegans, there's one for macrobiotics, there's one for point counters, there's one for uh, calorie counters. Whatever you might be considering, we probably have a starter template for you. Mm -hmm. And all of that is free. There's a bunch of other free stuff when you get there, but um, that's at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red reader bonus button and then sign up for that list and you'll... um, You'll get all that stuff. Awesome. And do you, do you still do one-to-one um, coaching, then? Where would people find you there, or would it be on the website as well? Yeah, that, that's also on the website, and there's also a contact button on the website, which eventually gets to me. My support team reads it first. Um, we, the, the most affordable coaching we do, it's, it's a combination of four group coaching slash lectures, because we find there are a number, a number of very common sticking points, and... Um, people don't really have to pay my, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly expensive guy at this point, so they don't really have to pay my rates to to do that. And then we offer a, a set of unlimited 15-minute follow-ups to customize things for people. We find that works kind of the best. It's the best combination of affordability and effectiveness that's that's worked out for us. But there's there's also one-on-one coaching available on the site if that's what you want. Cool. And uh, anything else you'd like to add to the end? Is there anything else we haven't covered that you think is important for the listeners to know? Well, you know, going through life with a monkey on your back is no way to go through life. And Jim, Ro- Jim Rohn said, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And I, I thoroughly believe that. There's nothing about what I'm suggesting which is going to take away any given food from you. There's nothing that's going to force you to stop eating something that you don't want to eat. This is about identifying the constructive forces in your head that knows the way that you want to be eating and teaching you how to follow your own best advice. 
Um, so I'm not a diet guru. Uh, I'm not a controlling guy. I'm just a guy who knows how to structure the mind to pull apart this um, incredible hold that society has on your lizard brain. And um, it's very, very different than anything you've probably tried before. So if you, if you are constantly changing your mind and jumping from diet to diet, you might want to um, head on over to Never Bitch Again and give it a shot. Yeah, 100%. And I agree with that. It's something I, I did a video, I think, last year saying, so I diets don't work. I mean, diets by very nature have an endpoint. And also, if you're going from a point of, I want that, but I can't have it, restriction, then it's like trying to tell someone, don't think about the, the green elephant. No way to think about green elephant, green elephant. But if you're coming from a point of, I can have that, but I don't want it, because that's not in my character, that's a hugely different um, standpoint to come from. So, Glenn, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to uh, getting this out to people. And um, keep well. I will. You keep well, too. This is great, Ryan. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you, Jim. Sure. So guys, that was Dr. Glenn Livingston talking all about how to never binge again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And in fact, we've actually got, uh, Al Fair is talking, he's actually got another um, another interview book with him where he's going to use his psychological powers on me and help me with anything that I may need um, addressing food-wise, etc. A really good way just to show you guys how this sort of thing works. So really looking forward to that. Um, so as always, guys, Head on over to www.reviveyourself.co for all the articles and our free four-day mini-course if you're dealing with any chronic issues, especially gut issues, skin issues, etc., energy problems, um, thyroid issues, whatever. Um, it's going to really help you out. And um, follow us on Facebook, uh, Revive Yourself Natural Health, and on Instagram, Revive underscore Natural Health. And if you can, guys, it's going to really help us out. I'm going to try and do some competitions, but really help us out with some reviews on um, iTunes because we want to get this information out to as many people as possible so we can start helping people around the world you know so if you could do that for me that would be great otherwise guys as always stay happy stay healthy and I'll speak to you soon bye bye if you're struggling with gut issues such as gas bloating constipation diarrhea indigestion heartburn and want to finally be able to eat the foods you love without the crippling after effects then don't forget to head over to reviveyourself.co and pick up your free copy of the healing health paradigm today